Good morning, everyone. Hey, if you brought your Bible today, 1 John chapter 3 is where we're going to be on our Bible study time. If you're pretty new to Journey or new to church, you didn't bring a Bible today, no big deal. Everything I read from Scripture will be on the screen, so it'll be really easy to follow along. If you have a smartphone, you can download the Bible app. It's free and will help you follow along anytime you come to church or need to look up a Bible verse. We're in week five of a series called Blessed Assurance. While you're moving to 1 John chapter 3 and getting your notes so you can follow along, maybe firing up your Journey app so you can follow along that way, um, let me give just kind of three quick things in 90 seconds. Uh, First, our volunteer inspire is tonight. Our Inspire service is a time where all of our volunteers across all of our ministries gather. Uh, In-house, we call this our Thanksmas event. It's a combination of Thanksgiving and Christmas. We'll have a meal together just to say thank you. And then we've got a gift, a Christmas gift. You'll see all of our ministry team wearing a long sleeve black shirt today that says follow in Hebrew across the front to celebrate our 2023 come and follow year. So volunteers, please be here tonight if you can. We'll spend about 50 minutes together in worship, a little kind of Bible study and a little prayer time, and then you'll break off in your ministries. We'll have a meal together. It'll be awesome. Um, For those of you who've been waiting on the Activate podcast to drop from Hebrews chapter 6, that will drop today at noon. Remember, that's the second part of a message on how you can know for sure that you're a Christian and why salvation is an eternal thing. There's a passage in the Bible that appears to say, If you're a Christian and you change your mind and walk away, you can never become a Christian again. So we unpack what that really says, how it says it, why it says it. So if you get 30 minutes heading to work sometime this week, dial up that podcast and listen to it. Great extra content for this message series. And then next Sunday is going to be a really special Sunday. Uh, Our friends Daniel and Brittany Brooker will be here. Some of you remember them from a few years ago. Daniel and Brittany both lost their spouses in their young 30s with young children. They'll be sharing with us not just their story of grief, but their story of survival and how they walked through this difficult season in their life. If you know someone who's lost a loved one, who's trying to figure out how they're going to make it to Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're doing this message right before the holidays to give hope to people who are hurting. If you are someone who's had hurt in your past and you're trying to figure out how to leverage your story to help someone else who's hurting. We're going to talk to them about that as well. We'll also be doing an Activate podcast with them that we dropped two weeks before Christmas called Hope, Hurt, and Blended Families for the Holiday. How do you survive when someone's not there who was supposed to be there? And how do you survive when you have this mashup of families and kids and in-laws and outlaws all coming together? Really practical content on people just trying to figure out Jesus' life. So it's going to be really, really good. 8.30, 10.30 next week. Don't come alone. Bring someone who's hurting with you. I think it'll be a huge, huge opportunity to minister to them. So week five of this series, Blessed Assurance. Uh, The series is based on one verse in the book of 1 John, 1 John 5.13. John summarizes the content of 1 John by saying this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. There's a whole book in the Bible devoted to helping Christians know for sure that they're really Christians, that they're really forgiven, that they're really saved, that they're really going to heaven when they die. And we've been studying this book. Today is the fifth Sunday of studying this book. First four weeks, we talked about stuff like this. Week one, we talked about the true nature of salvation. We said becoming a Christian is not just making a past commitment to a future promise and then doing nothing in between. There are a lot of people who said a prayer in their past, think they're going to get heaven when they die, but they don't walk with Jesus in their life. And we said that is an immature faith, a very incomplete faith, maybe a misleading faith. Some of you are here and you know Christians who don't act like Jesus at all, and it may be because they're not really Christians. 
They just said a prayer one time in their past. They think that made them a Christian, but they don't understand true nature of salvation. That was message number one. We started looking at this first of the six assurances in the book of 1 John that help us understand that we're Christians in week two. We looked at the assurance of an authentic Christian testimony. We said the testimony of authentic faith is this. Jesus proved that he was the son of God. Jesus, in offering us salvation, proved that we were sinners who needed to be forgiven. And salvation depends completely on Jesus, not on us. We could not be perfect enough for God, but Jesus was. He gives us that perfection. We don't want to be punished for our sin, but Jesus was on the cross, and he pays that price for us. So that is the testimony of authentic faith. We looked in the second week with Pastor Jimmy Dodd at the grace of obedience. And we said authentic Christians learn to and eventually love following the commands of Jesus. It's not our responsibility in order to remain saved, but it is our response of being saved. We learn to love the things that Jesus loves. Um, we also learn that we, we're not obedient spiritually in order to earn our salvation, but obedience is evidence of salvation, so it's a pretty big deal spiritually. A couple weeks ago, we looked at assurance number three, the, the, the endurance of the eternal, and we said that once we are saved, we are always following Jesus. And while following Jesus, we always feel safe with Jesus. So we said we don't like the phrase, once saved, always saved. can make you think if you said a prayer, you're good forever without walking with Jesus. So we said once you're saved, saved Christians always follow Jesus. And while you follow Jesus, you feel close to Jesus. And while you feel close to Jesus, you feel safe with Jesus. That was uh, assurance number three. And today we're actually going to hit two of them, assurance number four and assurance number five. And assurance four is going to be this. We're going to learn that authentic Christianity shows up in the way that our sinful and our spiritual affections change. We begin to feel differently than the way we used to about sin. We begin to feel differently than the way we used to about spiritual things. We're also going to learn assurance number five, that authentic Christians, they love the people of God and they live for the mission of God. According to 1 John, these two things, assurance number four and assurance number five, are going to help us continue to focus on our faith and the authenticity of our faith. We're going to learn about them in 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. we got a lot of scripture to cover today, so we're going to kind of dig in and go quick. Before we ever really begin to study scripture at our church, we pray and ask God to open our heart and help us. So would you bow your heads here? And if you're watching online, take a deep breath, if you would, while we get ready to dig into scripture. In Psalm 119, 18, the psalmist said, God, open my eyes to your word so I can see the wonderful things it has for me. Ask today that God would open your eyes to his word and that he might show you the wonderful assurances of your salvation. God, that is our prayer as we study 1 John 3 and 1 John 4. God, I pray you would open our eyes to your word so we can see the wonderful things that it tells us about being followers of Jesus, confident in our salvation. That's our prayer. And God, we ask it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So we're going to start with assurance number four. We're going to see that our sinful and our spiritual affections change when we become authentic followers of Jesus. We'll start in 1 John 3, and we're just going to kind of slowly move through the text today. Here's what John says, see what great love. The Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, Jesus. 
Dear friends, we are now children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. John is saying this, everyone who's a follower of Jesus, your transformation spiritually is not yet complete, but it is certain. And it is happening if you are an authentic Christian. In verse 2, he uses this phrase, Christians shall be like him. What he's saying here is authentic Christians are going to become like Jesus. This is not the goal of following Jesus. It's the reality. It's not something that will one day happen. It's something that today is happening if you're an authentic follower of Jesus. If you are a Christian, you are becoming more and more like Jesus. Why? Because John says God's kids resemble their spiritual father. They look like him. Last week, um, one of our worship leaders, Hannah Gracia, her dad, Vance Pittman, was here preaching. And her, her mom led worship. And if, if you did not know them beforehand, you would look at them and say they had to be related. And when I introduced Hannah's mom, Christy, to our congregation, someone, uh, one of our friends in, in our church texted me and said, my gosh, I cannot believe how much Hannah looks like her mom. I thought it was her sister. About three minutes later, he followed with a text that said this, I am so glad my wife does not look like her mother. Um, and like, I'm not, I'm not calling out names, but I'm saying somebody's married to somebody who thinks your mom is ugly. Like, I, like that is... That is how I took that text. But it's like sometimes, sometimes kids look like their parents. And what John is saying is God's children resemble him. They look like him. The goal of Christianity is not one day to be like Jesus. The goal of Christianity is today to look more like Jesus. It is not something we are called to. It is something that is actually happening right now in our life. You say, well, what's going to help me look more like Jesus? Two things. The way we feel about sin is going to change. It's going to help us look more like Jesus. And the way we feel about spiritual things is going to change. And that's going to help us look more like Jesus. Let's keep reading in verse 4. John says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So for those of you brand new to the church thing, what we're reading here is one of the 27 books called the New Testament of Scripture. They were originally written in the Greek language, translated to English just four or five hundred years ago. And sometimes the English is not as clear as the Greek. The phrase keeps on sinning and the phrase continues to sin is actually the exact same Greek word. I'm not sure why it's translated as different English words. But here's what that means. That means authentic Christians don't have habitual and continual sin without conviction, confession, and repentance. Christians become aware of their sin... And they don't like the way it feels when they do sin. This is not saying that Christians are perfect and don't sin anymore. As a matter of fact, 1 John 1, 8, 9, and 10 says that people who say they don't sin anymore, they're liars. That really applies to two groups of people. Um, people who say, I was never sinful in the first place, or people who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't recognize my sin. John says, no, no, Christians recognize their sin. They confess their sin. They repent of their sin. First John 2, 2, when we sin, we have an advocate before the Father named Jesus, and he forgives us. So what we're learning as we study Scripture is this. Christians are not sinless, but they do sin less than they used to. 
Because their affections and their appetites have changed. Sin doesn't feel good anymore. The things they used to love, the things they used to enjoy, when they do them now as a Christian, they don't feel good anymore. Christians aren't sinless. We're not perfect. That's not what it's saying. But when Christians sin, we're convicted. We feel bad. We confess. We tell Jesus that we're sorry. We repent and we say, we're not going to do that anymore, at least not as much as I used to because I want to be more like Jesus. Our affections change. Let me give you an illustration. Um, probably my favorite food in the world is tacos. And my second favorite is hot dogs. Um, not everyone is as refined as I am. I, like, I get it, but like, that's, that's the world I grew up in. I love Mexican food. Um, I, love, I love hot dogs like that. Like, as a coach's kid... Like, going, growing up at sporting events, like, I was always eating nachos and hot dogs. It must have just stuck. That, like, that's my thing now. Um, when I was in high school, my taco of choice was Taco Bell because it's all that I could afford. I loved Taco Bell tacos. My affections changed several years ago. Uh, I was doing a student ministry event where we decided that we were going to have a taco eating contest and we were going to see who could eat the most Taco Bell tacos as a part of this junior high and high school event before we preached to all these kids who didn't know Jesus. And the winner of the event was a sixth grader who weighed 65 or 70 pounds, who ate 22 Taco Bell tacos before the service. So we go from our event of eating tacos to the service. We do worship. Everybody's jumping up and down. The room is so packed that kids are sitting beside me on the stage as I'm preaching. And I don't know, 10 minutes into my sermon, this kid makes an uncomfortable, he's sitting 10 feet to my right, He makes an uncomfortable belching noise. And then he vomits those 22 tacos on the stage. Cross my shoes, on his friends, all over the front row. Um, And he probably should have. He probably ate a a few too many tacos that night. We can't stop the service. So I just told some leaders in the back, get him out here, get some towels and cover it up. So they, so like I just preached on a stage with shoes full of puke. Um, And we had dozens and dozens of kids respond to the gospel and say yes to Jesus. They all came to the left side of the stage that night. It was the only time that we didn't have to separate the sheep from the goats. They did it themselves. But like that night, that night, how I felt about Taco Bell tacos changed. I saw them in a different way. When we become followers of Jesus, the sin that we used to enjoy, it looks different. It smells different. And like we, see the, like we see the substance of it reverse engineered and it's like, oh, that, like that's disgusting. You would not have had to tell me that night, Christian, don't eat that. I know you love Taco Bell tacos and I know there's 22 on the stage. Don't eat those. I didn't want to eat those. When you were a Christian, the sin that used to be so near and dear to your heart, when it pops up, it gets to a place where it not only doesn't tempt you. I like No one has to tell you don't eat that. You don't want to. Your affections have changed. Your heart has changed towards sin. That's what John is trying to tell us here. We don't keep on sinning like we're used to because it just doesn't taste the same in our spirit. Look how he continues in verse 7. He says, Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. You might underline those words. We're going to come back to them. 
Verse 9, no one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or their sister. So verse 10 wants to launch us into affection number 5, but we need to pause on verse 8 before we get there because there are some things to unpack still in affection number 4. First, we need to look at this phrase in verse 8, the devil's work. What is, the de- what is the devil's work, if we could define it theologically? It was the corruption of perfect creation and spiritual fellowship between humanity, the world, and God that was broken through the sin of Adam and Eve. For those of you, again, pretty new to the church world, this book, which we believe is God's special revelation to the world so that they might know him, love him, follow him, one day be with him, says that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them for his fellowship and his enjoyment. The pinnacle of his creation was humanity. He created him and said, all this is for you. I am for you. Here's how I like you to do things. For everything to remain the way it is, you've got to follow me, but you can have free will and do it your own way if you want. The punishment will be death for you and everything that you see, but, but at least you'll enjoy it in this lifetime. And Adam and Eve said, you know what? One lifetime's good enough for us. We don't need eternity. And they chose to live life their own way instead of God's way, and it brought death to them and animal life and trees and grass and crops. And everything would eventually die because they chose to do things their way instead of God's way. And what the Bible tells us is that everyone born after them, what the Bible would refer to as being born naturally, was born sinful with a desire and an affection for sin and with a broken fellowship with God. Everyone after Adam and Eve born, was born desiring sin and running away from God. It's how you were born. You say, yeah, but I was born and raised in church. My mom and dad, like from the first day I was born, brought me into church. If they had not, you would have been born running towards sin and running away from God. It's how all of us are born naturally. But John says some are born of God. Jesus would use the phrase born again in John 3, 3. And born of God is this. It's being born again spiritually with a desire and an affection for Jesus and a fellowship and an intimacy with God. So all of us are born desiring sin, running from God. But at some point, we have this awakening and we're called into relationship and fellowship with God. And when we clearly see God, when we clearly see who Jesus is, when we clearly see what Jesus has done, when we clearly see what Jesus offers, we begin to move towards Jesus and away from sin. And we're transformed, Scripture says. First, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, as we contemplate God's glory, as we contemplate the glory of who Jesus is and what he did for us, we are being transformed into the image of who Jesus is with an ever-increasing glory. What's that mean? We become more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. And this happens so that we can understand who God is. It comes from the Lord. It comes from his Holy Spirit. What John is telling us is you were born naturally enjoying Taco Bell and running from God. But when you were born again, like your affection switched. And now you don't yo yo quiero Taco Bell. Now you yo quiero Jesus Christos. Like now you want Jesus and you're running from sin. You won't forget that, right? Like that's how it works. Your affections change. Your DNA is not rewired, but your affections are reordered. 
Like you just love God enough that things you used to love, you don't love as much anymore. Let me give you an example of that. So today is step two of growth track. Take a personality profile. You also learn your spiritual gifts. It's a great step of growth track to go to if you've not been there yet. I think as important as it is to learn our spiritual gifts, I think it's also as important to learn our unspiritual gifts. Have you yet realized what your unspiritual gifts were? The things that you were born with that you're really good at that are unspiritual. My unspiritual gifts are sarcasm, um, a critical spirit, a pretty quick wit, and I like to stir the pot sometimes. Those are my unspiritual gifts. I'm just really good at them. I don't know how, like I just, like God didn't give me those, but I was born with them. Those are my unspiritual gifts. And every now and then they creep up. Let me give you an example. Tuesday I was voting like, So many of you voted, and Danielle wasn't there with me. I usually behave more when Danielle's there with me. And because in 2020, I voted at the courthouse in early voting, so I was going to be out of town at the election, they still had my location of voting as as the courthouse. So I went to vote, and it buzzed my license, and they're like, oh, says you're at the wrong location. So, like, it held up the whole line for, like, five to seven minutes. And there was a family friend, like, ninth in line behind me, um, whose son played football for me at Summit Christian who was waiting in line that had been stopped because I was there. And she said, Christian, did you break the machine? Like we're in this room, 25, 30 people that I don't know. Christian, did you break the machine? And I just couldn't help it. My response that came to my head that I had to say with my mouth was this. I said, listen, this is the sixth place I voted today. I'm trying to get as many as I can. (laughs) And that's what half the room did. I knew at that moment who everyone was voting for because of who was laughing Who was really uncertain about what I just said? I was glad that I had not worn any Journey Church apparel that day standing in that room, but I thought, I can't help it. I just, that's the first thing that came to my head. I realized in college that was wrong because when I started dating Danielle, like three months into dating, um, she had gotten to know me a little bit. And I remember where we were on Candler's Mountain Road, riding down the road when she said, can I share something with you? I've learned since then, that's a dangerous question. <laughs> I didn't know then. We'd only been dating three months. It was like, yeah, you can share something. She said, you know, you, um, your sarcasm and wit um, and kind of critical nature, she said, I don't think you realize it, but a lot of times it's biting, and I think it take, people take it personally when you think it's funny. And she said, I don't think it ever helps you spiritually, and I actually think it hurts you spiritually, so you should stop doing that. It's like... Thank you, sir. May I have another? It's like, what, what in the world? Um, that didn't go away in me at that moment. But I love Danielle more than I love being sarcastic and witty. So it's like, she's going to become more important. That's going to become less important. Danielle, by the way, has the spiritual gift of exhortation, which is Greek for tell you off. Um, and sh- she'll do it. It's deep in her soul. Um, she can even do it non-verbally because she's doing it, right? Like exhortation with her eyes right now. She's like, yeah, I, I get it. Um, I feel it. Some of you, you think when you become a Christian, if you automatically don't stop enjoying something, that God wants you to do it. No, he doesn't. He doesn't rewire your DNA where all of a sudden you hate everything you used to love. But you begin to love Jesus so much. And you begin to see Jesus so often and you begin to desire Jesus so much that you say, Jesus, I want you more than I want that. So I know, like I think my DNA is shaped this way, but you are more important. 
My affections change. That's what that means. Our sinful and our spiritual affections change. Sin looks like vomited Taco Bell. Jesus looks like the person we want to please more than ourselves. That's what it looks like. Affection number five is this. We love God's people and we live for God's mission. Let's pick up in verse uh, 11. It says, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Three quick things. Let's start in verse 13. Underline the words brothers and sisters. This was always the New Testament's way of describing Christians. So we know John is now talking to authentic followers of Jesus. And he's saying, Christians, listen to me closely. And as we listen to his message, we're going to hear some things about first century Christianity that I call, what we're going to see is we're going to see some first century birthmarks in Christianity that are beginning to grow and must begin to grow in American Christianity. We're going to see some birthmarks of first century Christianity that are beginning to grow in American Christianity and must continue to grow in American Christianity. The first is this. In verse 13, we're going to read one of the spiritual birthmarks of the early churches that the world hated them. A few verses later, we're going to see that one of the birthmarks of the early church is that Christians loved other Christians. Now, folks, one of these, like I said, is growing in American Christianity. I don't know that people who refer to themselves as Christians for the first 246 years of our nation were hated like Christians are beginning to really be despised and hated for what they believe, Orthodox biblical Christians, and and like we will be hated the next generation or two. So like one of the birthmarks of the early church hasn't been around much in American Christianity, but it's it's starting. A lot of a lot of you have felt that a little bit, and it's coming. Which is why the second birthmark must, must, must grow. Christians must love other Christians. We live in an American world because we've not had any enemies that hate us. Christians are the greatest critics of Christians. We like to pick and pull apart every sector of Christianity. And the one thing that will make Christians love other Christians is when everyone who's not a Christian hates them. And we shouldn't have to be forced into that. That we love every Christian because there's a Christian because no one who's a Christian likes us or cares about us at all. But we live in this world that we, there literally is an entire Christian subsection that all they do is study and critique and attack Christianity. But if we were to read clearly the New Testament about what the New Testament church looked like, say, well, Christian, was the New Testament like a, was it like a mega church or a home church? Both. Jerusalem was a big one. There were some smaller ones in Colossae. Yeah, but was the New Testament church led by like staff who were paid or just like lay letters, like lay leaders who like had a normal job and led Bible studies in their home? Both. Both. Ephesus in the later years probably had a professional pastor. Colossae was always led by a businessman who had a church in his home. Yeah, but was the early church, did they have like more of a, like a charismatic flair and bent or was it just like verse by verse Bible study? Well, it was both. 
If you were in Corinth, probably would have felt a little bigger and charismatic. If you were in Berea, it would have been verse-by-verse Bible study. Like, can, can we quit making our preference the only true gospel? And can we realize there's like a big, wide swath of Christianity that biblically was lived and moved in, and that today we can live and move in? Do we have to be so critical of everyone who doesn't do it just the way that we do it? Everyone who doesn't like the music that we like, people who use drums versus those who don't use drums, people who go on short-term mission trips versus people who don't go on short-term mission trips, people who serve their community versus people who don't serve their community, people who do home church versus people who gather for church. Like, can we just stop criticizing people who love Jesus and realize most of us are on the same team if our theology and the main points is central and moving towards the gospel of Jesus? Like, I got caught up in this. Between my transition of my last church and this church, almost every church planner you meet will have had some discontent in their spirit with organized religion. It's why they want to start their own, because they want to do it differently than the way they were a part of. And I'd grown, I'd grown pretty cold towards organized religion to the point where I thought, I'm going to go teach and coach football and just be a Christian. I never want to be a part of an organized church again. But I felt like God said I could live in community and in, 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 in on mission with with a group of people and do what God has called his church to do. So we decided to kind of begin, like begin this congregation. And the first ever series I was going to preach was a series called Less Church, Teaching Through the Book of James. That, by the way, is not what James, that is not the context of the book of James. But James was written to a church that had been scattered. They were not going to be able to gather every Sunday for church, so they had to learn to kind of follow Jesus in their life wherever they were. And I thought, like, we can teach people how to really follow Jesus without having to be involved in church. Because I had a bad experience in church, I'm going to kind of rail against the church and just point people to Jesus. And I was meeting with a group of pastors, one of them by the name of Mike Bickley, who then pastored Olathe Bible Church. It's now called Journey Bible Church in Olathe. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Christian, Can you please trust someone older than you? Can you please not publicly criticize or dismiss what God's church has done for 2,000 years just because you had a bad experience? Can you please not start this church angry at church because you had a bad experience? It's unnecessary. And we changed the name of that series from Less Church to Rethink Church. And we said, okay, like Christianity is not all about being a member of a church. It's being in relationship with Jesus. But I remember him challenging me that like God's been using his church. Like the way, the way God designed for people to follow Jesus was to be a part of his ecclesia's church. Don't criticize the church, especially if people don't know anything about Jesus. It's not going to help the mission of God. Just because you had a bad experience, don't do that. You know, the next thing I'm going to say and put up on the screen, some of you are going to have some tension with, but you just got to figure that out. The Holy Spirit will never make you bitter at a church or another Christian. He just doesn't do that. It's part of his body. That's like your hand wanting your foot to hurt. Like, the Holy Spirit, go study scripture. The Holy Spirit will never make you bitter at a church or another Christian. So for those of you who are, you have to ask this hard question. Who is sitting on the throne of that part of my heart that I'm so angry, that I'm so bitter? Because Jesus is not leading you to have those feelings. Not saying you can't be hurt. Not saying you can't mourn. Not saying you can't learn. Not saying you can't have scars. We all do. 
I'm just saying the Holy Spirit is not telling you to hold on to that grudge. The Holy Spirit is not telling you to be bitter at Jesus' church or Jesus' people. It's just what the Bible says, and the Bible says it really, really clearly. Let's continue in verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Let's skip down to chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. couple things to pick up from this text. First, John is teaching us that authentic Christians leverage their time, their talent, their treasure to serve other Christians through God's church. We're going to love our spiritual brothers and sisters. If they need something, we're going to try to figure out how to provide it. We're going to be aware of people in our spiritual community. We're going to be engaged with people in our spiritual community. Like, we are going to leverage our life, our time, our talent, our treasures to serve Christians in our spiritual circle. That's what Christians do. Secondly, in verse 8, we're going to read this. We're going to read three words, God is love. I think we need to unpack three things to make sure with the emerging church drifting from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to say some things. Please note first that the Bible does not say love is God. First John, John 4.8 says God is love. But it does not say love is God. And there, there is a segment of pseudo-Christian authors, social media people, t-shirt makers who believe love is God. The Bible does not say love is God. The Bible says God is love. And what is the picture of God's love? It's Jesus laying down his life for people who are sinful, which means this. Please note that God's love invites us out of sin. Who say God is love, that means he doesn't care about your sin. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says because God is love, he paid for your sin on the cross, and then he invited you to stop living that way so that you could experience the life he wants you to live. Please note also that loving God is living through Jesus by repenting of sin, coming out of the darkness and into the light. I think this this whole philosophy of God is love, love is God, love like if you just love, you're doing the right thing. Well, let's define love like the Bible defines love. Love is Jesus dying for our sins so we can stop living in our sins. So we can say, I'm sorry for my sins and live the life that Jesus wants us to. Remember 1 John 2, 2, that if we sin, we have an advocate who has satisfied the payment for sin. Jesus will not one day stand before God and say, God, they, they, like, they were a good guy, good girl. God, their sin's not a big deal. That's not how Jesus and God interact about sin. Instead, they say, God, they're a sinner and their sin is awful. But I already paid for that sin and you can't charge us both. God is love, but love is not God. And God's love invites us out of sin and into a relationship with Jesus that demands us saying, here's how I was born, love that Taco Bell, but now I love Jesus more. 
and I repent of sin and I move towards Jesus. Let's not miss those things as we read. Verse 13, let's race to the finish line. This is how we know that we live in Jesus and Jesus is in us. He's given us his spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. Let's skip down to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So let's give three final points and let's move to a time of reflection. Here's the first one. The way the world sees the love of God is by watching his people love one another and live on mission with one another. That's what verse 12 says. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another and God lives in us, His love is made complete in us. No one has ever seen God, but they can see God's love by the way we love and serve one another. So like, it's a big deal for God's people to love one another and serve one another because people can't see God unless we do that. Secondly, we're going to learn this in verse 16. We absolutely cannot love other Christians well without relying on how Jesus loved us well. It's just impossible. People are too broken. Verse 16 says this, we know and rely on, on the love God has for us. How do we love our brother and sisters? We have to rely on how God loves us. The proof that Jesus loves differently than everyone else in the world is that we love differently than everyone else in the world. People say, how can you love someone who hurts you like that? Well, let me tell you how. Let me tell you about a man named Jesus. Let me tell you about love I've received, which allows me to give love well. But then I think the last point maybe is the most important. Our love for God's people, our life for God's mission is both a response and a responsibility. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. It's our response. But it's not a suggestion. Verse 21, and he's given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. Love what God is doing. Love who God is doing it with. Love the church of Jesus Christ in all of its shapes and sizes, in in all of its dimensions. Love God's people and what God is doing with his people. Listen, folks, as we close today, here's the reality. The greatest potential of God's church for God's mission is his people. The greatest problem in God's mission is his people. But we cannot let those cancel each other out. People are potential, but people are problems. So I'm just going to kind of step out of the mission of God. We're not allowed to do that. This is God's command. Love your brothers and sisters. Get engaged in what God is doing in the community of who God is doing it with. Why? Because that's the only way the world is going to see how Jesus loves. And the only way that the world is going to understand how Jesus can love them when they don't deserve it is when they see Christians love people who don't deserve it. So really, we don't have a choice whether to forgive the person who's hurt us because it could be the only way someone's ever going to understand forgiveness. And we don't have a choice to love unconditionally when someone doesn't deserve it because that might be the only picture they ever get of unconditional love. 
And we don't have a choice of whether or not we want to turn the other cheek, go the second mile. Because that's the only way some people ever see how awesome Jesus is. Is they see us do that and say, why would you do that? So affection number five, man, we love God's people. I love you and you love me. As broken as we all are. So Christian, you almost got arrested at a polling place Tuesday. I know. And I apologize for that. I hope you love me anyway. I saw you ranting on Facebook a couple weeks ago. You might have turned some people off. I know. I love you anyway. That's what it looks like, like to do relationships with each other. And that bitterness, the wound, the hurt, the anger against God's church or God's people, you have to figure out where, where that comes from. Because if Jesus sat in that seat, you already know the answer. They've not done to you more than you've done to Jesus, and you know how he loves you. It'd be different. So what's God said to you today, and how do you need to respond? As we close our service time, we're going to close with some just prayer meditations, which means this. I'm going to put three questions on the screen. They'll each be up there for a minute, and after 60 seconds, the next question will kind of click. Our goal is to sit in what we've learned and to respond. To not just hear it, but to think about it and respond. So our meditations are formed as questions, and your answer really is your prayer. So as you answer the question, turn it into a prayer. Here's my answer. God, I need your help. At the end of these three minutes, I'll come back up and close this in prayer. At that time, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you feel like for a long time God's been drawing you in and now you finally know the answer is Jesus, I'll give you a chance to begin your journey by accepting Jesus as your Savior and committing to follow him. And then we'll dismiss and a lot of us will be back here at five o'clock tonight. But before we do that, let's reflect. Let's answer. Let's talk to God about what we've heard. God, open our hearts, our eyes. Allow us to be honest about our spiritual journey in our prayer meditations. In Jesus' name, amen.